welcome to Preflections, a series of conversations brought to you by Pantopicon, in which we reflect upon present-day society and peer through its cracks in anticipation of possible worlds to come. This week I had a chat with Susan Yelovich from her hideout in Bovina, upstate New York. Susan's a design scholar, critic, curator, and professor emerita of design studies at Parsons School of Design, the new school in New York City. In her varied career and, and writings, she always took a much broader approach to design than most, one that zoomed out towards design in people's lives and literature in time. Like few in her field, or rather across fields, Susan managed to weave threads of design together with the reflective, the poetic. With her, soft-spoken yet sharp-minded as ever, we will talk literature, design and the future, among many other things. Enjoy. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nick. Good to be here. Great having you uh, you on the on the show, um, Susan. When when I invited you to to join me on the podcast, you, your first reaction was, "What do you think we could talk about?" But <laughs> when I go over all the amazing things that you did and wrote all these years, um, and also the people that you inspired, I, I would say covering it all in this conversation will be a challenge to to say the <laughs> least. So, um, but perhaps for people to understand your, I would say really wide angled view and approach of of, of design. I, th I think it's nice to start out with a bit of a, a condensed overview of, of, of your background and your, your career. So where did it all start, uh, Susan? I would say that it probably consciously started at university because I took a course in architectural history and they didn't have design. No, nobody knew what design was in 1970 or 72, whenever that was. And, um, I fell in love. I had an amazing professor. His final paper was um, kind of brilliant. He didn't ask us to analyze a building, and this was at the height of formalism. Um, he asked us to analyze a street in Providence in the historic downtown, so it was relational. And um, that made a huge impression on all his students, not just me. But I often think that my interest in design also came about um, fairly young. I mean, my father's family were builders. Um, they weren't great builders, but it was interesting to see houses going up. Um, and I was a child of the 50s and went through what I call domestic boot camp. So I was taught certain processes that you wouldn't call them design now, but you could analyze them in terms of design. So uh, from how to clean a house, to how to embroider, to how to knit, to how to sew. There was a level of construction common to all those activities that I really liked. The idea that when you're sewing or stitching, that you're building, and you don't quite know what the outcome is going to be. So it's not like paint by numbers. Um, there was always this sense of possibility, latent possibility, of course. Um, you know, when you're little, you don't think quite that way. But it was clear to me, um, actually, this uh, came together in the workshop we did together years ago at uh, the Design Research Society conference, where everyone was asked to put 10 artifacts or images of artifacts in an envelope and write a short story about them. 
and it was about your practice. And it was the first time I realized that I was kind of building arguments and grafting them in my writing, but also lately now in my um, actual practice. Um, I, I call that loosely. I don't consider uh, the work I've been doing lately, which involves a lot of stitching, to be in any way, shape, or form art. But um, I, I have a husband who's an artist, and I feel like I studied art long enough to know the difference. But there is a sense of um, things coming into being in the making, as opposed to process art, where you set up a system, press a button, and then you stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, university was really pivotal. Childhood was pivotal for most people. Um, and then what, my first real job out of, um, after art school. By the way, I thought I was going to be an artist. I didn't think I was going to. Um, I didn't ever think I would be a successful artist, but I thought I'd have an art, artistic practice. So when I moved to New York, I got a job in a museum as a secretary, thinking, well, it's a design museum. At least I'm not going to walk in and feel jealous because there's all these paintings on the wall and they're not mine. Um, and I ended up being the secretary to the secretary of the director, which meant in those days that you typed on, a, on, a, on an old typewriter everything that came across that office. So I sort of had the bird's eye view. That's where I learned what Sev Porcelain was. That's where I you know, learned what ship's embroideries were. Um, it was very random in some ways, um, but it was – I always – considered it, um, you know, I never got a PhD. I have an MFA in fine arts, but I always considered it was kind of like a postdoc in a weird way. 25 years, you pick up a few things. <laughs> Absolutely. And then Parsons came after that. Um, after a short hiatus at the American Academy in Rome, uh, Clive Dillnott um, asked me if I wanted to teach. And I'd wanted to teach my whole life, but I could I was never in a position where I could just work as an adjunct. And I told him that. I said, at that point, you know, I think I was 50. And he said, no, no, we'll hire you. And eventually they did as a full-time visiting and then assistant and then associate professor and, and now professor emeritus. So I was there for 15 years. And there again, I sort of backed into it blindly. I hadn't been at a university since 1972. I had no idea what to expect, and I found out the hard way, that design students at that point in time, say 2006, um, didn't think they were going to be doing much writing. And that's what I was teaching. I, what I taught involved writing. I, and I was interested in the way design affected people. I still am. So we were looking at globalization and culture and how design was responding to those forces and leading those forces in some ways. And it was a real baptism by fire um, with uh, not a few pieces of hate mail. <laughs> but if by the end of the 12 years, I, or no, sorry, eight years I taught that course, I was teaching 400 students a semester with 14 teaching assistants. And there's where I made some amazing friendships. The PhD students that I met, who one of whom I co-authored Design is Feature Making with, Barbara Adams, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so that was incredibly important to me. And uh, I had a budget at the time, which is unheard of now, to bring in people from around the world to talk about how they were enacting theory. So uh, I could bring in someone from Serbia, like even Kuchina, to talk about um, co-design. Um, that was his, his practice was moving in that direction. 
Or I could bring in Sean Donahue to talk about uh, Apia's notion of cosmopolitanism, um, which was a view of the world where you're local, you have local loyalties, but you're also responsible to the world at large. And, and how do you negotiate that? Um, and so these designers were actually already tacitly performing theory. And the one thing I hope students that I kept trying to explain to students is that students, the theory is not in a test tube. Theory is an experience someone had. And my job was to make sure that I could explain that theory in ways that were accessible. So Zygmunt Bauman's a pretty sophisticated guy, but his theory of culture, that it was either hierarchical or differential or generic, you know, I would say, well, you're, you know, the velvet rope at the nightclub shows you hierarchies. Um, us and them, you know, your new roommates from another place. That's a differential dynamic. Generic, I used to say, forget the word generic because it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> he meant something, but it meant that we can't help but make culture. That that's mm -hmm. what we do as human beings. Um, and it's both our blessing and our curse because we're always insistently modifying. I, I hate to say we're not making new because I don't think so, but we're modifying and at great risk many times. Um, but that was really fun. Uh, so as I got deeper, more deeply involved in academic culture, um, I found that what I really liked doing was translating the ideas that rest in design in different ways to students. And it turned out using literature was one of my favorites. Yeah, because... You mentioned that it came as a quite of a shock to the students that they had to engage in, in writing. But I, I was wondering whether the shock was in the writing or in the reading. <laughs> um, the reading was the challenge, yes. Because so, I had this notion that if I picked 20 pages of an interesting anthropology text by Arjuna Potterai, that, that wasn't burdensome. But what I forgot was that it's like reading a different dialect. It's not, and that's why the translation became so important. Um, I often made mistakes myself. I remember the first time I read uh, Johnny Vacimo's section on ornament. It took me a while to realize that he wasn't talking about ornament in the conventional sense. Or when a Potterize talked about um, culture as a civilizing force, he wasn't necessarily being positive, that he was talking about a measure of control. So I was learning along with the students. Um, but I think what I always tried to do was I took the, since I'd worked in a museum for 25 years prior that received federal funding, was the Cooper Hewitt Museum, we had an obligation to talk to audiences who were absolutely outside of design, who thought design were cars or jeans. At the same time, I couldn't insult the design community in New York by somehow dumbing it down. So my, my way I would test myself is I'd talk to my mother, who was a very smart woman who had a high school education. Um, and if, sh if she and I could be on the same page, then I felt fairly confident that I wasn't overshooting or undershooting. So she, and she was a useful editor, but even better, of course, is my husband, who is a painter and a poet in his own right. Mm-hmm. He was my first editor. <laughs> One thing is the reading of the books, but I think it, 
in in what I see um, also in the way you write, so that's why the writing and the reading is of course very much connected. Um, it's also perhaps that you were teaching uh, the students to read the world around them and their own practice in a different way by making them look at it through the eyes of all these different authors, all these different fields, all these different dialects to express. Is it, would you say that was the case? Or, I would or how say would that you was position? exactly the case. And the other challenge was that this was a required course. Of course, no one wants to take a required course, but it was a required course for every junior at Parsons. And that meant in the audience, you'd have students who were architects, product designers, fashion designers, communication designers, strategic designers, service designers. Um, and I was really trying to be very ecumenical about the kinds of ways uh, we, I hate to say illustrated the theory because it was more like performing the theory. Um, and that was true every time, you know, as a, someone who taught in the, what used to be called the critical studies aspect of Parsons or the liberal arts, or I think it was called history and theory later. Um, you never knew who was going to walk in the room. So there were always two things top of mind to me. One, that I not favor one discipline over another. And two, that I not favor one ethnic, national, um, regional perspective over another, uh, which was really interesting for me. And it surprised me often how seemingly incurious students might be. They live so much in the present and there's so much for them to contend in the present that I remember when Ivan came over from Serbia that I, I literally had people say, well, why should we care what's going on in Serbia? Um, and I don't think they should necessarily care about Serbian politics, but they should care about human beings and different modes of living. Um, I think one of the challenges in teaching uh, is always the fact that you take for granted as someone who's older that your education, and you have to remember they didn't ha they've had a more modal education, whereas um, I was very aware of World War II. I was very aware of history, my parents' history, and I enjoyed it. But not everybody comes to the classroom with the same interests or aptitudes. So uh, I think one of my weaknesses was that I tended to think I could do it all through explaining sometimes. And I'm sure there are more creative, dramatic, performative ways of teaching that I missed out on. <laughs> I did co-teach a couple studios um, that with one with a practitioner, uh, one actually one sociology course. And that was very instructive for me to see how um, we could use practice to animate what was going on. At, at the same time, I would say that... Um Your, your most recent book called uh, Thinking Design Through Literature. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how you, how you came to writing that. But um, it links to what you were just saying in the sense that uh, when you wonder about teaching through, through telling and explaining, uh, I would say that book is a very generous book in the sense that it, it opens up a wealth of worlds to explore through the authors that, authors that you, you touch upon. Um, And as in your previous books, I would say it's uh, some of the the sideway escapes you may actually make the voyage through that book. Um, 
And so in that sense, I would say you, there, there's so much room that you create in order to give people the possibility or the opportunity to explore these areas for themselves. Uh, I don't feel personally that you, um, that you wrote the book to, to explain it all and close it off. I would say it's, it's more like you, you tickle them into a, the direction to, and see what, uh, which, ones, uh, which sideways they, uh, they want to go. Um, but, but take it back a, a step perhaps. And, and how did you come to, to write that, that, uh, that book? Was that that fascination with literature as such, or did you see a particular connection to, um, teaching students in design, what they might get out of it? Or, um, was that too instrumental of a, a note? No, no. I think what happened was it was like a lot of things in my life. It was a sheer accident. Um, I was always an avid reader and particularly when I was, um, getting up to speed with all the theory I'd missed since the, since 72 to 2005, um, at night, I would need something, i need to travel. Um, you know, after reading Zygmunt Bauman or whoever all day, Agamben, um, and I, so I always read, and I always read, uh, fic, I mostly read fiction. And then uh, my son was, it, the book came about specifically uh, because my son came home from college with his thesis and told me that instead of writing a typical literature thesis at Bard, 150 pages on Faulkner, um, they allowed him to do analyses of 12 different novels. And the common thread was how technology thwarted communication, which I thought, A, was pretty strange because Henry is a big tech buff, that he was looking at the, the foibles of technology. And I read one particular passage on William Gaddis's Carpenter Gothic. And in that story, the protagonists' lives are thwarted and complicated by their telephone, their television, and uh, the radio. Uh, and I thought, he's writing about design. And I thought, how this is amazing. I could take two things I love and marry them. And I didn't immediately sit down to do a book. I decided to teach a course. And I proposed it as an elective, and I taught it for quite some time to both seniors and to grad students. And each year, I would add uh, different texts. And uh, I remember I, part, of the, part of the goal was to introduce students to different voices. I mean, I'm not a literary historian. I'm not a literature, literary scholar, um, which is one of the reasons why I had such trouble getting a publisher for the book. But I did know that reading Proust is a very different experience from reading Gary Steingart, if you will. And, but that they both would have something to say. And more than that, instead of analyzing design, they performed it without calling it design. And as I say in the, somewhere in the introduction, um, no one says, I'm talking to you through my design. I'm sitting on my design. I am leaning on my design. I'm walking on my design. And yet, all these things are configured. Now, it may be too ecumenical of you for some people, um, but I think that the one thing working at Cooper Hewitt impressed upon me was that, yes, design as a systematic mode of making things could be charted from the Industrial Revolution, but almost everything we can think of has DNA and an artifact that existed before. Um, just the way, I'm trying to think, uh, I remember looking at something that I loathed at the museum, you know, these big decorative chargers. I just thought, oh, this is the kind of thing the world doesn't need. And I realized, 
They're just plates. They just took on an ornamental status. And that transfer of meaning from one thing to another, from one era to another, was really sort of reassuring and fascinating to me. But I'm, I'm digressing from the literature issues. Um, so I taught that course for a long time. And then after 10 years of teaching, I got a sabbatical, and I thought, this is it. This is going to be the first book I do purely out of love. I mean, design is future-making was good to do, but it grew out of a course. Um, I would say I was encouraged to write it. I didn't sit down and go, oh, I want to do, I want to transform that course into a book. But this course was totally my invention and the book I felt would be mine. And part of it is I'm just so excited about sharing. Um, and the idea, I was once criticized. I, I, I gave a lecture to a seminar this fall about the book. And the woman who invited me said, well, you seem to have already figured everything out. And I said, well, I do think that when, you know, a person uses a specific word in juxtaposition with other words, I can derive a meaning that's rich from it. But I am open to other people reading it differently. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, when I was teaching the course, we always read The Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker. And The Mezzanine's a day in the life of an office worker. And what I love about it is the everydayness of it. The guy breaks a shoelace and he's kind of OCD and he starts thinking, well, why did one shoelace break and not the other? And this goes on. And I thought it was all about the objects. I mean, to the point where he makes a list of things that disappoint us. And so my take on that book is, okay, your stapler runs out of staples, your phone runs out of batteries, your shoelaces break. Why do we expect technology to be immortal? And I think we, we do that. And my student said to me, well, said, I don't think it's about the objects. I think it's about the doing, the stapling, the tying. And I reread the book and he was right. It is both. Because they're, they're not, he doesn't mean them for this. He's not really interested in the staple per se, but he's interested in that moment of annoyance that you always know is coming. But when it comes, it's always, you know, a little jolt. Like, oh gosh, I've got to get up and fill it with staples again. It's supposed to keep working. These things are supposed to keep going, (laughs) but they don't. So, yeah, I do hope I open doors for people to think. Um, Obviously, they have to read the books, but these are specifically my translations of what they might mean for designers. I I think there's there's, there's also a lot of beauty in the way that you, I mean, you've mentioned these ordinary objects, but by... um, shifting people's gaze, whether it's towards the action, as you just mentioned, or to the extraordinary dimensions that even those ordinary objects can uh, um, can, can highlight. Um, there I would say, I, I also see a connection to your book of designers future making in the sense that there's this perspectival shift that's very, can be very illuminating uh, for people in the design profession, can also be very confronting for people in a design profession uh, you uh you also show um and I, th- I think it's also written in your um in your fo- in your introduction where you say design might set the stage through the objects but literature sets the plot it says the different scenarios that might unfold around these um could you unpack that a little bit for us like uh, where do you see the the connection and the and the difference i think that what i was getting at was first of all i'm not a designer so I am 
the person who confronts or bumps into design or is embedded in systems that have been designed around me. So I'm curious as to what happens after uh, whatever it is, the system or the artifact or the building leaves the drawing board and we start interacting with it. The tension between the intent of the designer and the behaviors that it engenders. And I think it actually, I've just been reading James Dodd's book on phenomenology and architecture, the idea that things themselves exert a force and that we exert a counterforce. They're not separate. They're constantly in tension. And I think that's what happens in life. And literature just makes it vivid. I also thought that, yes, um, I, I mean, it was really critical that I had read certain texts before I started writing it. I did not, I tried to keep the, the more complex theory to the notes because I really hope this book will be a, a soft cover someday and have a broad readership. Um, I didn't necessarily mean it to be for um, libraries. <laughs> but I think the idea that um, you can make, I mean, I'll take the story of the Bridge on the Drina as an example. Um, the Bridge on the Drina is a novel that's based on a true bridge in Bosnia. The bridge um, it still exists. It was built by Sinan, who was the architect of Istanbul's greatest uh, mosque, the not the Hagia Sophia, but the Suleimania Mosque and most of the bigger ones you can think of. Anyway, he built, he was a Janissary. And to give something back to the land where he was actually stolen from, <laughs> he built a bridge that still stands that has an opening in the middle or a little swelling in the middle called a kapia. And I learned about this through a sociologist who was teaching a course on borders. We were co-teaching a course on borders. And, um, then I read the novel and discovered that, you know, there was a great, there were great narratives to be attached to it. This wasn't the whole object of a bridge is usually to get from point A to point B. So now I had to rethink the bridge. And he, Sidon had helped me, the novel helped me. And then um, a friend passed along, in fact, it was Barbara Adams, uh, my co-author of Design is Feature Making. And she gave me Simmel's, um, a passage from Simmel about how, what bridges do and what making the fundamental ways we design the world when we enter it. Um, but then I found that Ivo Andrich, who wrote the book, had a description of a bridge where you are both, your feet are on solid ground while you're swinging over the water like an acrobat. Meanwhile, you know consciously that you are connected on both sides. I'm doing a terrible job of paraphrasing it, but it was a mix of understanding the fundamental the shared experience we have of marking paths, of creating paths, unlikely paths, which would be a bridge, to moving to the point where a path could be also a site of congregation. Um, it's a very pacific idea where people uh, in the novel and in reality can sit in the middle of the bridge and talk to each other. Um, but the novel points out that it was also the site of much conflict. Um, and that not, it didn't mean that, as we obviously know from politics today, that that region of the world um, had a happy outcome. But there were moments on those bridges where uh, the Austrian-Hungarian soldiers who were um, stationed there ended up sipping tea with the tea sellers who would have been 
Muslim and watching parades of communions from the Catholics and the occasional procession of Jews come across the bridge. It was kind of like the bridge became the equivalent of a New York City subway car where you see a lot of difference and you become accustomed to difference. It doesn't guarantee a perfect cosmopolitanism, but it, it's potential. And design to me is just that, it's potential. And because design is potential, embedded, materialized somehow, that potential has to be fulfilled or acted upon by us. That's a beautiful way of, uh, of putting it. I, I, um, I also feel that uh, perhaps especially in, in, in this time frame, that um, capability to reframe, to reposition, to uh, change perspective is um, especially uh, necessary and, and, and valuable, I would say, um, especially as, as we're also shifting into an age in which also the the agency of things is shifting a lot. Uh, if you look at how um, non-human actors, and I'm not talking just about plants or animals, but but also the what we would consider up until recently dead objects become um, animated through artificial intelligence uh, or whatever. That whole agency is is then almost literally shifting. It, it can act upon us as much as we can uh, act upon it. But in a way, what you show through the way that literature has always dealt with those objects, with those spaces, that fluidity of, of, of agency has always been there. And I think um, it, it's, a, it's an enormous source of um, uh, not just inspiration, but almost an ingredient for uh, not just designers, but everyone to, to grow that muscle that we're going to need so much in the, in the, in the years to come. Um, that shift of agency and, and the sensibility and the sensitivity to that, is that something that you also noticed when you would bathe your students in, in, in literature, as you just uh, explained? Um, they would say that I was uneven in recognizing their agency. Um, and I'm not sure... I think what they wanted to say was they wanted to read the book a different way. And there's many, many ways to read a book. I was asking them to read it in terms of things, not the romance. And, you know, when you're 20 or 22, sometimes it's hard to make that leap. I mean, my, my explanation was that it's like the tortoise and the hare. Tale of the tortoise and the hare is not about tortoises and hares, and yet you couldn't tell it without them. So making that leap to speed and patience, um, and they would say, "Oh yes, you can tell it with a you know a fast moving blah blah blah," and I'd say, "Well, not quite." So those kinds of arguments I hope were useful for them to. But in terms of agency, um, I'm not sure. I remember thinking about agency really acutely when I taught with a colleague named Elspieta Matini, and it was the first time I'd taught in Poland. We were doing a summer workshop, a three-week course, two-week course in Wrocław, and we were talking about things like um, open spaces where there had been demonstrations at the end of communism in 1989. We were talking about how agency came about. We, of course, we were talking Hannah Arendt, um, and I said, well, 
I think that architecture has agency, if not literally configured into it, because it's not conscience, the potential. I said, you know, we're in a room with one door. You can only leave. I said, it's not particularly insidious, but your agency is limited. And we went back and forth and, and she ended up being a convert. And I ended up sort of modifying my view to make sure that I wasn't using magical thinking on the whole notion of agency and things. Obviously, um, we, to certain degrees, I think it's interesting how artificial intelligence will assume a kind of agency. Um, I'm working on a very funny project right now. Uh, I have been, um, one of my former students taught me how to do darning, decorative stitching darning. And a friend of mine is a photographer who takes digital photographs and feeds them into artificial intelligence programs. And David's images, this is David Young of Triple Code, have this incredible textile look when they come out. So I said, have you ever thought about working with textiles? And that led to what's a very nascent partnership where he took images of my darned or stitched sweaters, the, the darn, took those photos, digital photos, fed them through the AI, and now I am stitching them. And um, it's absolutely fascinating to see what's going to develop. I have no idea. It's, it's a joint project, so I don't want to say too much more about it. But the shared agency, um, I'm not trying to reclaim it. I'm just interested in the echo chamber right now between something that's manipulated beyond my capacity and my capacity to re-manipulate it um, at a different speed, at a different tension. Um, I've always had a fascination with the idea, uh, what I call our Pinocchio con co complex, um, the idea that we want to make um, things real, real boys. And that led to the chapter on beings in my book. Um, you know, it's the ultimate design act to me to design a doppelganger. So whether it's a golem or whether it's Pinocchio or whether it's uh, a VR, like Primo Levi writes about early virtual reality. He does this. I had no idea he did science fiction. Um, and the, the, the hubris of us wanting to, you could call it hubris to make ourselves companions or our innate loneliness, um, I think, you know, it's probably not so far away from doll making in a weird way. On the other hand, the way most people are approaching has nothing to do with figuration, nothing to do with human-like presences. I understand that, but um, I like the car. I like thinking about what possible correspondences there could be in the drive to make intelligence and the drive to have a twin, if you will, or a protector or a guardian angel. Um, I think, you know, we've been doing it uh, through literature, through imagination for a long time. So I'm excited to see what comes out of it. I'm not so excited by the Japanese hotels with the robots that welcome you. Um, that's not what I mean. Uh, but I am excited about um, transformations that can happen. And I don't have any particular predisposition, you know, as to their value either. Um, I'm just absolutely curious. I think one thing they 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 do, especially in the 
in the perhaps not the phase that technology is, but the phase we're in as as a society and, and as people is also that a lot of those technologies they project our world back onto us. Um, yes, and um, they they make us aware of, if not question, our preconceptions, misconceptions. I mean, we see that happening uh, happening all the time. Um, Coming back to um, your line of, of, of design, setting the stage and literature, the, the plot and the different scenarios. In the foreword to your book, Paolo Antonelli writes, um, writers can interpret the ways in which objects have shaped and will shape culture, politics, and even mortality long after designers conceive of them. Um, it almost seems to, to put literature at a higher echelon than, than, than design in terms of generative power. Of, of shaping a different space altogether, I would say. Not just um, um, being evocative or, or creating a thing, but also the, the circle of life and the circle of, of interactions that that thing um, might, might go through through its lifetime and, and what it might impact, including society, including space, including everything else. Um, how do you look upon that? Is, is literature for you as well, that, that extra dimension? Um, I think designers are enormous risk takers, in a, mostly in a good way, because they cannot, they don't have crystal balls. They can do all the user studies they want. They can do post-occupancy uh, evaluations, and some of them are really good. I remember talking to a professor at Brown who worked on housing in Mexico, and Instead of asking people how they liked their new homes, he had them write what they did that day for a few days to see what came through about how their lives changed. So that actually does speak to your point about what literature brings. Literature, um, in my view, each of those stories is a one particular slice. In other words, the, the possibilities for, let's say, an escalator in um, the case of the mezzanine are limitless. Um, the potentialities are quite, what Nicholson Baker does is give you a menu of possibilities and presumably will open up more. Um, designers don't have the luxury of staying with their subjects over a lifetime or over generations. They go back to the Bridge on the Drina, that novel starts in roughly the 15th century, I think, and it goes to the 20th, goes to World War II. Um, and the bridge is central. The same bridge is there the whole time doing different things. Um, and the nice thing about that story is the bridge changes character as the characters changes. Um, so it's never static. And, as, and a bridge is a pretty static thing. It's you know, made of stones. But I do think that being able to... It's tricky. Being able to articulate an experience of um, a, a relationship to design is something that um, might be useful to other people. I'm thinking of one story which is sort of perfect for this moment and sort of, except that it's a comedy um, about things that's something that's going on that's very sad. It's about death. Um, there are a lot of people experiencing death in the most egregious ways right now. But one of the things that the um, fortunate of us who are removed from the worst of it can see is how 
systemic of viruses and how many industries, you know, we hear a lot about unemployment. We hear a lot about politics. Well, Jose Saramago wrote a book called Death at Intervals, where death herself decides to take a vacation. She's decided that people don't value her and they have a bad opinion of her. So she stops dying. And it's, in, it's set in Salazar's Portugal, ostensibly, because that's where Saramago, he was, his, all his books are about power. And of course, the government's flipped and the church is flipped. And it turns out that as time goes on, there's not an industry that's touched. The caregivers um, are have, people won't die. They won't go away. The hospitals are overflowing. But the coffin makers have no coffins to build. Um, and the government's called upon to say, well, what's going on? And they say, all we can do is say it's in God's hands. And the bishop calls up right away to say, don't you bring God into this. We're in trouble here. If nobody dies, there's no point for us. And slowly you realize the web of uh, artifacts, professions, activities, systems, processes around a single life event. And to me, that was probably the first time I kind of understood design as um, as a web. Uh, I remember when in the 90s, when uh, especially, you know, people were anxious in product design particularly, and they were getting to do, talking about doing more corporate consulting, more of the idea, ideal kind of work, which is very valuable. And I kept thinking, but I'm still bumping into stuff. And I realized that what Saramago does so well as he shows how the stuff and the systems are all part of the same system. And I think right now the challenge when we think about the systems that are going to be unraveled, it might be interesting to look at books like that or certainly, I mean, there are certainly tons of textbooks, but to say what's, I mean, we're going to have to do the system of the elevator. I'm surprised I haven't seen articles about elevators, how particularly at the school I teach in, are students going to ever return to class? As it is, in a good year, students wait online for an elevator for about 15 minutes to get up to the 12th floor where their class is. And they're jammed in as though they're on a Japanese train. Um, and that clearly isn't going to work. And vertical campuses, whether you're a school or not, um, don't have the luxury of spreading out. I mean, even if you went to school 24 hours a day in shifts, I'm not sure how it's going to work. So the idea of looking at um, the systemic relation of the very physical thing of the elevator <laughs> um, to how we live healthy lives uh, is going to take people like you, Nick, to, to sort out. Well, um, I, 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 it really resonates with me when you, when you mentioned the, the systemic dynamic, but beyond the mere... Uh, physicality of the technology, as, as as you mentioned, for the elevator, for example. Uh, I mean, there are voices that that say that, especially in times like these, when um, a lot of the systems that we've designed and created run amok because the people having designed and created them uh, have either lacked the imagination of what might happen to them in in unintended uh, circumstances. Uh, think about, for example, the impact of social media on, on democratic processes. Um, so there are voices that say, that, well, if only we would educate um, our designers, our engineers in a way, um, and our citizens in a way that this overarching 
questioning, multidimensional attitude um, would be a kind of like basic attitudinal uh, stance when, when well, designing. You, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah. The education part of it. And one of the things that everyone who teaches, I don't care what field you're in, will tell you is that, oh, my students don't understand history. You know, the Korean War could have happened in 1600 or 1800 or 20th century. That's really not the issue for me, especially as our students, uh, as the world is smaller there are more, you know, what do I know about the history of Japan? What do I know? You know, there's no canon anymore. But I have this um, idea that I would like to, I don't know if I'll ever make a book out of it because it's too big, but that there are four ambitions that motivate design. Um, one is the ambition to control, to order. One is the ambition to persuade. One is the ambition to craft. One is the ambition to subvert. And what I did, I try, I taught this <clears throat> last February, just this last February, is I started with something most people would recognize today as controlling, persuading, crafting, and subverting. So on the simplest notion, a stop sign is a control or if a gated fence. Um, and then... Uh, for performance, you would have something like uh, self-learning machine, machine learning. Um, for crafting, you could look at communal uh, co-design, where you craft a situation. And subversion, you could look at any number of, um, you could look at satire, but you could look at, say, Constantine Boehm's work or Dunn and Raby's work. And then to take those recognizable points and go back to time so that when you get to, you start with, the stop sign on control, you'd end up with Greek classicism and literally the orders and all the way through. Um, with persuasion, you'd get down to the Baroque and you'd get down to the Byzantine. With uh, crafting, you'd get down to the vernacular pretty fast. You'd, you'd go through the regular crafting, but you know it has a social dimension of it. It doesn't have a particular look. And with the subversion, again, the, the form is less important, but grotesques. Um, uh, you know, anything satirical. I think that understanding your motivation as a designer is really important. And if you're interested, you don't, you don't have to know that someone has been there before, but I always find it so comforting to know that somebody's been worried about this before. Somebody has wanted, like Buckminster Fuller, wanted to create a housing unit that would be suitable for people after the war that would go off quick. He created the geodesic dome. It had a very closed system about it. Um, its intentions were good. And um, he was trying to find ways to mitigate what, what might be wrong with it. And he did in the Wichita one, he created, you know, all kinds of different components inside that uh, would be self-sufficient, that would be environmentally correct. And then you have hippies in the Drop City era taking the same geodesic dome and making it out of random car parts or fabric and, you know, saying, well, we want to loosen this up a bit. You know, you know who really wants to live in a geodesic dome where you can't hang a painting on the wall? Um, <laughs> uh, and then the, none of the categories are discrete, but I do think it's important to know why you're doing something. 
And if you want, and, and also the element of chance, the most important thing to remember here is none of these categories are discrete and that even when you're trying to do something that's deliberately controlling, like making a CAT scan machine, designing a machine that's going to be good for the patient, good for the doctor, you might accidentally, serendipitously come across something from another source and incorporate it into it. You know, accident and chance um, are the qualifiers for all of those um, and being open to them. Uh, I, I think my whole life is based on accident and chance. <laughs> and grounded in things that I studied from other people. I still have, I talk about this with my friend Lorraine Wilde, who designed thinking design through literature and made it um, the double track of the design images in it and their stories with the literary stories. She made them work. She teaches the history of graphic design as a straight chronology. And her students love it because they don't have that information. Um, like they're shocked to see that William Morris was a socialist and, you know, designed beautiful wallpaper in the process. But, and I think that's, um, that's what I meant when I started by saying we take for granted our own educations. And I think we have a responsibility to plug the dike where we can. We can never do it completely, but at least to say, look, there's a possibility that you're not alone in the world. Philip Lopate, talked about the personal essay in a way that I think about learning. He said the personal essay makes you feel a little less lonely and freakish. Someone's been there before. And I thought Philip was so brilliant to use the word freakish. He took what was a fairly erudite compendium. He has everybody in there from Cicero to Montesquieu to you name it, and he throws in the word freakish. Um, and it's that gift for um, combining the everyday and the erudite that I so admire. It's what Michael Sorkin, the late, most beloved Michael Sorkin, um, was able to do in his writing. And I know there's, there are arguments for and against the kind of bell letters. Um, I actually think words are quite powerful, even though we all know the reader you know, is entitled to have his own interpretation. <laughs> I think it also beautifully illustrates what you said before that design is is a web. There's there's so many entry points. Right? You can yeah. take the the historical entry point. You can contextualize it in in, in so many ways. And and speaking of which, um, there's a few terms that that have come up in our conversation. Uh, you talked about the the web. You talked about. Um, weaving about stitching uh which are very much terms linked to the to to textile yes. um you seem to have, have quite a bit of attention that you spend in in a lot of your work um on 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 the textile dimension as a metaphor both as in the, the it's it's most physical um, form i would say uh to me personally it makes a lot of sense from a variety of perspectives i mean also in material sciences and, and some of the most high-tech areas of application, this shift of attention towards the benefits of textile has been under for a while, underway for quite a while now. Um, but on the other hand, also in complexity science, in epistemology, in storytelling, this, this textile-imbued metaphor of weaving is proving to be such more than, than metaphor. What, what is the textile dimension to you and, and why is it so important in, in today's and possibly also the, the future world? Um, personally, textiles were, um, it's almost the same story as the design and literature story. I uh, had an interest in 
um, all aspects of design. And all my life, privately, I like textiles. Uh, actually, if, you know, as, a, as I mentioned earlier, I was you know, taught to do things that people aren't taught to do anymore so much. And quickly, I was made to realize that um, if I was going to be a citizen of the late 20th century, I was in college at the time, that I had to put all those needles away. That was really, you know, and I, I certainly was an ardent feminist, um, you know, but I remember when I was taking uh, my last course in painting and I went to Brown University and the art department was wonderful. We had great people there, um, Ed Corrin among them, but it was the era where no one taught you how to do anything, which was a blessing and a curse. So I walk into my first painting class and the instructor says, I don't care if you paint on bed sheets or cardboard, just go out and buy some paint and do something. So, I mean, if you're complete, I was hoping to be told like what kind of paint to buy. So we were basically given this amazing freedom. So by four years of this, I thought, well, what is canvas? It's cloth. So I started shredding the canvas and then taking the threads from the canvas and stitching back into the canvas. And that painting won some sort of prize. And there was a little validation there. Um, but, you know, I, and it was just sort of in the back of my mind that there was some relationship to fiber. Um, and Christo was starting to do, well, he was already around, but I was really an admirer of his work. I started doing things in graduate school at Cranbrook with dyeing fabric, making sculpture with fabric. I liked the idea of the fragility of it. Um, I liked, it was a, physically and a metaphor. Um, it was b appealing in both ways. But it wasn't until I lived in Italy. I had the good fortune to have an, a Rome Prize from the American Academy in Rome. And saw how many churches had interiors where textiles had been emulated in marble. The Jesuiti, most famously in Venice, um, has what looks like damask. When you get up close, it's green and white marble that was based on the damask altar cloth in the Yezu. It was part of the Jesuits' propaganda program. They carried their visual brand with them, like the Spanish steps. You could find Spanish steps in Croatia, <laughs> in, you know, uh, at any rate, um, I thought, this is pretty amazing. And this isn't about drapes and cushions and pillows. This is about somebody honoring the textile. And obviously, textiles were critical to the Italian economy. So there were lots of reasons why they might do that. At the same time, um, I've always followed architecture. And it was clear that architects were using textile tectonics. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I can do something with it. So I did some research on it for a few years, trying to find um, more the why than the what necessarily. Why was this so compelling? Why? And it, part of it is, I mean, there's no separating the elasticity of the textile from a functional point of view to its more metaphorical point of view. There's a givenness, uh, a given, uh, uh, we, you know, fabric has give to it, even a tightly woven fabric. Uh, it's made up of a collective of threads. So I like the idea that textile is a coming together. It allows for graphs, it allows for possibility, and parametrics is the computer kind of version of, or it's not a, and it's not a one for one, but it allows buildings to be conceived not in terms of <clears throat> compression, but in terms of expansion and contraction for obvious reasons for storms and hurricanes. Um, but most of all, I think 
I'm looking at the cover of my book right now, and the Anselm Kiefer um, image of the female figure with the book on her head. And I know I was drawn to it, not because it was such a literal thinking image, but because of the dress. Um, I felt comfortable in that realm. I felt that uh, my feminine side was... I, the pleasures that, that I was kind of denied as a young woman were still available to me in textiles. And what do I mean by that? If you were born in 1950, even in the most liberated household, and my father was a strong feminist, um, your first 10 years of your life, you thought you'd grow up to wear ball gowns someday or, you know, tailored suits like Lauren Bacall. And then along comes Kent State and nobody cares. And there was a little part of me that always felt a little gypped of that kind of feminine. Um, it took me a long time to realize that that kind of fem those women basically had to manipulate the world. They didn't have power. They had to steal power. Um, and I'm utterly grateful that I grew up when I did grow up and that uh, while I wasn't a radical, that I had radical sisters who were out there fighting for me and other women um, and still fighting. Uh, the fight's hardly over. Um, but I do think there was a, just a pure pleasure in the textile. I don't know how else to put it. I think it has to do with, again, going back to phenomenology, what I think of as the excess in things. If you're drawn to something, if you love opera, it might be the music. For me, it can be ceramics and textiles, probably. I, they just never, they never stop satisfying me. They, there's always something more they can give me. Um, and that pleasure is a mix of its materiality and the idea that someone else planted in it. You know, I don't come to the world naked. The world doesn't come to me naked. So it being in conversation, I mean, things start conversations for me. Textiles, most importantly. Um, and I, I, I'm not a particularly interested in fashion per se, but I am interested in, again, it's the building. I'm thinking about um, one of my favorite textile artifacts. It's something I saw for the first time in 1983. And it was called a sailor's embroidery. And it was what sailors did when they were killing time at sea in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, actually 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, they would stitch portraits of their ships and they were rectangular portraits. And the ships were cool, but what really got me was the waves and the sky because often it was just running stitches. And they were like cloth bricks. I don't know how else to put it. And I started thinking about it, you know, now that I'm quasi-retired, I was, and I looked them up and they cost a lot of money. They're, they're very rare, obviously, not that many survive. So I decided to sew one myself and it's kind of goofy, but I just wanted the pleasure of building up the stitches. Um, it's not that I think I should, you know, people should embroider. I'm not going to enjoy it. Uh, although I have started a collective quilt, a knitted quilt. Um, as a social endeavor. That's a different story. But for me, the pleasure of the textile is watching it grow or pulling apart and seeing its parts. I often thought I'd like to be a surgeon to see inside the body, you know? <laughs> uh, it's definitely a very, very dynamic um, image. 
cleaning our house this weekend, I came across some materials from a, a world building workshop you and I and my wife Virginia and, and Lisa did in Oslo a few years ago in which we took uh, Stanislav Lam as the Polish science fiction writer um, and his literary tropes and tricks as a, as a source of inspiration for people to to envision and write their own stories about the future. Um, speaking of which, uh, I see that in your book you also mention uh, another writer I, I very much uh, enjoyed and, and discovered recently, Sigismund uh, Krizanowski, for example. Um, of course, they touch almost literally uh, upon the future, um, which leads me to to my uh, uh, my question to you: like, if if you through literature um, would touch upon the future of of design, of education, of everything you've been involved in, how where would you like to see it go, or what do you what are your hopes for it? My hopes for design or literature. <laughs> Maybe I think literature hopes, offers the hope, as we mentioned. I would hope to be there for a better literature of design. Um, and what do you mean by that, uh, Susan? I think that I would like to see more books like Clive Dillnott's Ethics Design. I would like to see a version of a book that shows design's consequences, ethical impact, because every time something enters the world, it changes a behavior in some way. Um, I'd like to see that written for a sophisticated undergraduate. Clive's book changed my whole view of what design is. It's a capacity. Um, but I have to admit, it's it was a challenge for me who hadn't read Gillian Rose and hadn't read a lot of the philosophers he'd referred to, to contextualize some of his marks. It was only after three or four readings that I think I really took it in. Um, but I think we often, you know, as much as we need to have straight up histories, I think we need to have more well, actually, I don't even know if they have to be called design. I often used to assign my students articles from the New Yorker Review of Books or the New Yorker, where people would talk about the impact of something, uh, something like uh, driverless cars. And they would, uh, I can't remember that author's name now. She's fantastic. Um, Sue Helper, that's it, I think. And she, at one point, raised the question, well, if driverless cars become so efficient as a way of getting around and they even take over multiple users and what will happen to the subways? And I all of a sudden thought, well, the subways will be catacombs. Well, our subways might be catacombs now. I don't know when we're going to ride the subway again, but I think the idea that someone, and there are a lot of people asking what if. There's a lot, there's a whole field called design fictions. Um, but I'm not sure we're writing and I'm guilty of this as well, for an undergraduate. And I think that when I say an undergraduate, I think that that transcends to, um, it depends. I mean, I would think there should be undergraduate text type, text type books, but there should be something written at the level of the New Yorker, at least. And I know why they don't have a column on design. It probably would be meaningless. I mean, it encompasses so much. Architecture, they've even dropped per se, they still have art. Um, but I think that, you know, things have taken a real, um, 
have, have gotten shot in the arm due to a lot of the literature coming out of uh, universities. I really think that would be useful to, at the same time we're making, to think more about the why. I know the anxiety on the part of students right now is whether they should make anything. They are very aware of the extent to which designers have contributed to the mess we're in, and they don't want to do that. Um, they're becoming closer to anthropologists. They really want to study for a really long time. And what I keep trying to remind them is that what you contribute is, you know, you're allowed to come to the table, just don't have the hubris to think that it's an answer. And if it's presented in such a way that it's um, something that you can, uh, a gift that you can return, <laughs> or a mutual sharing of gifts, then it has a better possibility. But I do understand their reluctance. Um, but I sometimes think that it's just a sad state of affairs when um, their well-intentioned uh, mentors have kind of paralyzed them. <laughs> um, I thought that one of the most ingenious ways of introducing both the artifact and the idea of design into a social construct was in Welcome to Sarang, your project with Virginia and Elisa and other people, where a city was asking for your contribution to thinking how it might be in the future, and you chose the vehicle of the puppet show. And you made one of the puppets, you know, I think a white knight or a white-headed cowboy, sort of a fool, coming in thinking he had the answers, but allowed the audience to laugh at the expert and at the same time to have the expert presence there mm -hmm. in a gentle way. And without the puppets, all the good intentions, all the post-its in the world, I don't know that it would have been as effective. It certainly wasn't, wouldn't have been for me. I mean, I, was, I thought, now there's a, a bridge um, that is tactful. I think if we tend to think about, um, you know, respectful conversations and think of design that way, um, that would be useful. On the other hand, there are moments, as Cameron Tonkinwise used to tell us all the time, when outrage is warranted. And um, there again, I tend to be, I don't have the courage to, I mean, I, I, that's never been my style particularly. Um, I think that I'm much more interested in the bridging aspect. So future, um, I think being able to negotiate is, is just critical. I think it's just so difficult. It's so difficult when I talk to my son who's, who's very generous and in reality is generous to uh, family members who may not share his politics. But talking in the abstract, I mean, there are just certain uh, news outlets, and I'm not talking about Fox, I'm talking about mainstream news outlets that he just doesn't want to deal with because of their neoliberalism. Whereas I'm much more inclined to think, well, I have to know what someone's saying, or um, I don't know. I mean, I have no magic bullet. I've never been, I've been the beneficiary of the bra burners, of the flag burners, of the radicals. Um, and I wish I could be that person, but I'm there to sort of weave things together with, you know, maybe, maybe. Well, I, th I think the keyword here was the the bridging that you, or the bridges that you uh, brought up. I, th I think you've definitely 
built quite a few bridges through your um, your work and 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 bridges that um, that definitely will help others to uh, to get across to the other side or at least see things from from multiple perspectives. So um, thank you for that, Susan. Thank you for this um, wonderful interview. Thank you, Nick. My pleasure. And uh, I'm I'm sure that uh, some of the bridges you've built will also have reached uh, this audience. Thank you very much. This was Perflections. You can find me on Twitter at Pantopinik, P-A-N-T-O-P-I-N-I-K, and our Foresight and Design Studio at Pantopicon.be, P-A-N-T-O-P-I-C-O-N-B-E, without dots.